you have your Bibles, you'll want to get those out. Um, We're going to be in Colossians chapter 4 today. We're finishing up Paul's instruction on uh, how to live centered and complete in in Christ. There's one more message next week that's um, the the greetings and and a a final benediction, if you will. But um, here is really the, the final instructions to Colossians. It's the culmination of his entire letter and um, the end to the application of everything that he's taught through the first three chapters. It's like, kind of like the last chance you get to see somebody before they're going away for a while and you want to get that last, the most important thing that I could possibly tell them right now. Uh, I need to make sure I get that in before I'm done. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's trying to impart a last morsel of wisdom to them before he ends his letter. He's laid everything out in his case of how the Colossians were before Christ and how they ought to be now that they are in Christ. And he's going to put the final exclamation point here. So Colossians chapter 4, um, if you would, let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in verse 2 through verse 6. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for... uh, It's truth from beginning to end. Um, The fact that we can constantly plumb its depths and learn new things, yet your word is timeless and unchanging. I ask that you grant us understanding this morning, um, that you sow these seeds in our hearts and that they might find good soil, that they might find uh, willing eyes to see, willing ears to hear, willing hearts to receive. For your glory, Lord. Amen. So Paul here, what he's doing is he's, he's going to weave his own situation finally into the book of Colossians and apply his situation to theirs, even though Paul and the Colossians are in two entirely different situations. Paul's obviously, he's in Rome right now, in jail, house arrest the first time. And the Colossians, generally speaking, are free people. They are able to come and go, they're able to worship freely, and and all these other things. So Paul, what he's going to say to them right now, I'll back up a little bit, is there's three things that he's really going to hammer in in these five verses. Number one is he's going to hammer the the importance and the idea of prayer to them. Number two, he's going to hammer home the importance of glorifying God in all things. And number three, he's going to talk about representing Christ to the world. Verse 2, he says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. What he's saying is the same thing he wrote in the letter to the Thessalonians. Pray without ceasing. Pray always. When he says that, pray as often as you remember. He's not saying if you take a second off from praying, you're wrong. 24-7, 365. He, didn't, he couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. We can't hold ourselves to that standard. But what he is saying is, as often as, as the Spirit impresses on you to pray, pray. And be vigilant. Look for opportunities to pray. And to do so with thanksgiving. We talk about the idea of prayer and, and, and 
some people have an idea of what that looks like in our head. Oh, praying is this. Or praying is I go and I lock myself in my closet with, and I just stay in there for like five hours and pray to Jesus, and, and that's what I do. That's great. That's awesome. That's one facet of prayer. Praying can be many things. You can, you can pray scripture, as I talked about a couple weeks ago. You can pray all kinds of different types of prayer. Here's just a handful I'll throw up for you right here. Um, there's a prayer of supplication, which is um, an example of that is in Psalm 51, where David, this is when he was caught in, in his sin with Bathsheba, when Nathan had come to him and had confronted him with his sin. He goes and he writes to God, and this is what he says in part. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is always before me, and against you, you only, have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know your wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. This is the, this is the one everybody knows. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. So David here, he's praying. Yeah, he's, he's caught. He's praying a prayer of repentance. But what he is doing is he's making supplication to God. He's saying, God, this is what I need right now. What I need right now is your forgiveness. And he's going to extol the virtues of God. He's submitting his request to God. But notice it's not just a huge laundry list of, you know, it, it's not David's Christmas list. Let's just put it that way. It is, these are the things that I need in my life right now. Only you can provide them to me. And in doing this, he is showing himself submitted to the will of God. Supplication comes with an attitude of, I'm not going to come and tell God I want this, 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 and this. It's aligning yourself with God's will. It's coming with that mindset of, yes, I have wishes, but... I'm going to submit myself, as Steve talked about last week, to the will of God. And if God needs to change my mind and my heart and change my wishes, I'm good with that. A second type of prayer that we have is the prayer of intercession. We see lots of those in Scripture. Um, Acts 12, verse 5, is a pretty common one. Herod has just killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And he, takes, he sees that that pleases the Jews. So he takes Peter into custody too. And they see that Peter is going to uh, probably get about eight inches shorter before too long. Uh, and so they go in one accord into this house and they are praying. They are, they are fighting for Peter spiritually. They're praying hard for Peter's release, for his safety, for God's will to be done. All of a sudden Peter shows up on the doorstep. And the servant girl goes out, and she's like, hey, Peter's here. No, Peter can't be here. We're too busy praying for him to be released from jail. But they got their prayers answered once they figured out that it wasn't 
wasn't his ghost. He wasn't already dead. It wasn't a practical joke. God had answered their prayer, but they went before the throne of God on behalf of another person, on behalf of Peter in this instance. A third is a prayer of praise. We're going to go back to David again. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7. What happens here is he's talking about, um, I want to build God a house. I want to build the temple. And God tells David, no. But here's what I'm going to do for you, David. I'm going to establish your kingdom. And from you will come a ruler whose reign will never end. Speaking of the Messiah, obviously. But David turns around and says, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you've brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O God. And you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you, nor is there any other God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. That's where David starts. He begins with just extolling the goodness of God. He can pray and just pray God's goodness. That's prayer. You can pray intercession. You can pray supplication. That's also prayer. You can pray a prayer of consecration, which is... You think of Jesus in the garden. That's what he was doing that night. He was praying for the strength to do what God had appointed him to do. That's why he says, Father, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. He takes it one step further in John chapter 17. They're in the garden. He's already told them the hour is coming. It's now come. You guys are going to be scattered. You're going to leave me alone and yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. And then he turns and says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you in the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he's saying here, Father, it's time. Glorify me. Give me the strength to walk these last few steps you have. I've done everything to this point. Now it is time for you to glorify me. The last example I have, there are tons in Scripture, but the last example I have is is Acts 1.14. That's corporate prayer. That's praying together, gathering together with brothers and sisters, setting like this, maybe a designed prayer service to come and gather together and to pray all of these scriptural ways to pray before God, whether it's hymns and, and, and psalms and the word of God, or it's supplication, or it's consecration, or it's, or it's intercession, or it's praise and thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, by the way, is to be in all of these. Everything comes out of the thankfulness for what God has done. If you notice that in the passages we read, David, extremely thankful that God has chosen him to do this. Um, even thankful, I would say, that God has shown him his sin then and would forgive him for it. But thanksgiving is to be in all of these. Paul wants to put in our minds, in our lives, in the lives of the Colossians, and I would say in our lives today, an attitude of prayer. 
Jesus when he came through and he flipped over the tables and he drove out the money changers and he did all that, what did he say? He said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, right? Yeah. So prayer is important to God. Paul is expressing this in his final instructions to the Colossians. This is important. Don't miss it. Pay attention. Pray at every opportunity. Look for opportunities to pray. Do it with thanksgiving. And while you're at it, he says in verse 3, pray for me also. Pray for us, he says, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So here Paul again says, he says, I'm in chains. I'm in chains for the gospel. He's not saying I'm in chains because of the Jews, because they just wouldn't leave me alone, and they were making trouble for me at every turn. I'm not in chains because I appealed to Caesar. I'm in chains for the gospel, the mystery of Christ. That is why I'm in chains. He writes, almost every letter that he writes, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, doulos, slave by choice. He's in Rome here. He's under house arrest. He's allowed visitors. He's allowed general free movement in the house. But he's still in Roman custody. But he says, pray for us. He says, pray that we might have an opportunity. I would argue what he doesn't pray for is almost every bit as telling as what he does pray for. He doesn't pray, hey, pray that they might go easy on me. They might let me run down to the corner store for, for a few minutes that I can get out of this house for the first time in a couple of years. Or better yet, that Caesar would, would hear my case immediately and let me go because I'm without charge. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't ask for a stay in his current conditions or anything. But what he does pray for is for an opportunity. He says, whoever God has brought into my life, he has brought into my life for a purpose, and that purpose is that I might speak the mystery of Christ to them. Everybody he came across. Imagine those Roman soldiers the ones that were chained to him while Paul's writing his letter. And he's probably telling them everything he's writing as he's writing it. That's, that's a pretty interesting situation to be in. And it's possible that those Roman guards may not have heard unless a child of God was in custody. Even though he doesn't know the outcome of his current trial, this time he's going to be released. But he knows that God is in control of all things. We see examples like this today. We've got a pastor that we support and that we pray for in Turkey that's in a bit of trouble with the law right now, right? Some of you, maybe not all of you, maybe remember Pastor Saeed Abedini from um, Idaho, Iranian. He went back and he was lobbed in the worst of the worst prison in Iran for three and a half years. And we prayed... At at our church in Idaho, there was a lot of praying, God, get him out, bring him home, bring him back to his wife and kids. You know, you can do all things. And and believing in that, and that's all fine. But what Saeed's wife said was, I feel closer to God through this trial than I I have ever. My prayer is just that God God is glorified in this. And we heard the stories filtering out loosely that there were beginning to become people that were understanding Jesus. The Islamic world has an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is. They know of Jesus, but they don't know him to be 
the Son of God. They don't know him to be the Messiah, the one who came to erase their sin debt so that they don't have to work for it. So they have a knowledge, but they denied the power. And with a Christian man put in the worst of the worst prison, all of a sudden people are starting to understand the power of Christ. How else, I ask, would those people in that God-forsaken prison ever hear the truth about Jesus Christ unless God sent somebody there? That's the attitude Paul has here, is that God is to be glorified in all things. We see his, um, his sometimes um, abrasive buddy in ministry, Peter, writing about this in 1 Peter as well. He talks about God being the center of everything. It is because God has put us there, so whatever situation he puts us in, we are to turn that around and give that back to God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11 says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with as, as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what Paul is saying is he, and Peter is saying here is that God's glory is paramount in the life of the believer. Whether you're free, whether you're in chains, whether you are, are able to go to Christian school or whether you go to public school, God is supreme in your life. You, you are to take whatever situation you're in, even if it's hard, most of the time this is going to be hard, but whatever situation you're in, God needs to be glorified in it. And I don't know what that means for each of you. Each of you, I know, I see some heads bobbing. You each have your own situations where you're just like, God, I don't know. But the prayer needs to be, as difficult as it is, is God, I don't know how you'll be glorified in this, but I know you can and you will be glorified in this, so help me glorify you in this. Uh, we had a situation where we, where we had a plan. We, we had this idea of what everything looked like, and it's awesome, and all of a sudden the doors are flying open, and we're, we're possibly you know, moving halfway around the world, and all these things are amazing, and I, I quit my job, we, got, we, we sold off our house, everything's gone. We, we've burned the ox and the plow, as Elisha did. There's nothing to go back to, and we get down this road, and all of a sudden God pumps the brakes. And we're sitting there like, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm mourning the life that, that I thought was going on at this point. But we committed, as difficult as it was, God, you did not waste this. You're going to use this. I don't know how. I don't really feel like right now that you're going to use this. But I know your word says you're going to use this. And so, even though it goes against everything that I feel right now, I choose to believe it. And lo and behold, God's glorified in it. <laughs> because we're here and not somewhere else that, that, uh, that, we, that we had drawn up initially. But uh, that, that's, that's all proof positive that God works for, for his purposes. And if, if you can just hang on through the wild ride, trust me, he will be glorified in it in the end. Paul knew this. That's why he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, 
when everybody's begging him not to go. Don't go, to, don't go back to Jerusalem. We know, we know what's waiting there. Paul says, I don't know what's waiting for me other than I know chains await me. That's all I know. I don't know anything else. But he says, but none of that stuff moves me. No, nor do I count my life dear to myself. Because I'm going, paraphrase here, David paraphrase, because I'm going to glorify God and to make him known. I don't count my life worthy of any of this stuff. I am just chasing this here. He talks about it also again in Colossians 3, 16 and 17. You know, whatever you're doing, do it according to the character of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, talking about eating and drinking and being judged for what you eat or drink and observe. But he says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And in Philippians 4, 13, commonly misunderstood verse, he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What he's referring to there is the ability to be content in God, in all circumstances, and allowing God to be glorified in all of those circumstances. So Paul has spoken here, and he understands clearly what is to be done, and and the chief end is that God be glorified in all things. The Westminster Catechism, what's man's chief end? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, is what the Westminster Catechism says. Those two concepts, they act in concert. Um, They're... There are two famous pastors from, from somewhat different schools of thought that have the same general idea. Um, there's Chuck Swindoll. God is glorified to the maximum when his people voluntarily worship and adore him. John Piper. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I don't think those two things disagree at all. Because when we worship and adore, that's the thing we value. That's the thing we take pleasure in. You'll hear me probably during football season talk a lot about the Seattle Seahawks. I love them. <laughs> I don't love them more than Jesus. But you'll probably hear that because, I, because I, I, they, they do bring some enjoyment to my life. You know? But Jesus brings the ultimate enjoyment. Jesus is the treasure. That's the gist of what Paul's writing, what Chuck Swindoll says, what John Piper says, what the Westminster Catechism says. It's, it, it's that... Jesus is the treasure. It's, he's it. We adore him. We worship him. Worshiping means we ascribe value to him. He alone is worthy. Whatever it is we do, wherever it is we are, whatever circumstances we're facing, we glorify God because he's the provider, he's the sustainer, he's the source of everything that we are able to enjoy able to endure, and able to tackle. And we're able, with that knowledge, to be content in knowing that whatever God gives us, even if it hurts, even if it's painful, even if we don't know how to sort through it, somehow, some way, it's good. Because he's good. And he gives us good things because he is our father. He pivots Here Paul does, knowing that God is good, knowing that we are to have this mindset of prayer and that everything we're supposed to do is to glorify God. How does that look to the people around us? Verse 5 says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each one. He moves from how we're supposed to act as believers in the church to how we are supposed to represent Christ to what he calls the outside, to non-believers, to the world. 
The entirety of this letter has been establishing Christ's supremacy and our unity in Christ's supremacy. But now Paul tells us, he says, we can't just keep that for ourselves. We do need to remember, I think, and this goes for the Christian church at large, so I'm making a very blanket statement here. But the Christian church at large would do well to remember that what is written in this book, generally speaking, is written by believers, to believers, and for believers. There is truth in here that everybody needs to know, absolutely. All men are sinful. There's no way to God through your own work. Jesus has come to bear that sin debt and declare victory over sin and death through the cross and the resurrection. And you must receive that in order to be reconciled to God. That is truth that everybody needs to know. But practical living is written to the church. How is the church supposed to conduct itself in the world? People outside, they're not ra- they're dead in their sins. That's all they know how to do, right? So don't be surprised when sinners sin. It shouldn't be shocking. Too often we beat those outside of the faith over the head with what the Bible says to Christians about how Christians should live. And that's harsh. It's truth, but it's truth without love, which is brutality. It's not kind, it's not loving, and you wonder why people are so turned off at the church at large right now. Our words, Paul says, are to be full of grace. They are supposed to be full of truth, they're supposed to be full of love, but it's not truth by itself so that we can redeem the time. And the idea of redeeming the time isn't that we've got to go claim everything that's bad and make it good all of a sudden. It's making the maximum use of the time that God has given us. So we are supposed to make the best of every opportunity. And the way that we do that is in our interactions with believers, we build each other up. We encourage each other. We keep each other accountable in the things that we say and do. Are they like Christ? Are we acting in whatever we do, Colossians 3 says, according to the character of Jesus Christ? If we're not, then we should be comfortable enough to approach each other and say, hey, I, know, I noticed this. Everything all right? Check in with them. Make sure that everybody's on track. We're supposed to encourage each other like that. But to the outside, our words are to be gentle. We're supposed to love. We're supposed to show Christ. Act humbly towards each other. And that's how it is used to maximum effect. Paul is also saying something else here that gets pushed back a lot. That... um, Our faith, while it's definitely personal, if we are supposed to conduct ourselves and and relay our faith to, to the outside, it cannot be private. Our faith is to be a public faith that people know about and are able to see, but at the same time is not going to be something that's just going to smack them over the head every time you walk by. Matthew 5.13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if something loses its saltiness, what good is it? It gets, tramp- it gets thrown down and it's trampled, on, trampled under. Salt is the preservative. It's also for flavor. So we, in a way, and our words, in a way, are to be flavor and preservative to a world that is decaying, 
exponentially right off a cliff. But God has called us to work in the world, to live in the world, not of the world, and to approach people who may believe differently as us with grace, with love, with speech that is, that is winsome, that's compassionate, that's uncompromisingly true, but in a way that is going to be loving, is going to be tender, is going to be caring to people, that we might show love to them and not be, not be brutal to them. And that is what Paul leaves the Colossians with. He leaves them with this evaluation, I guess, as it were. Are you, are, you, are you praying? This is how you should pray. These are the things you should pray for. These, this is how you should act to your brothers and sisters in the faith. This is how you should act towards people who are outside of the faith. And he leaves it there before concluding with his greetings. Um, and I think that that is an interesting spot for him to leave off on because everything he's done has been, to this point, has been to the church. This is how you act in the church. This is how you act to your believers. And this is how you act to people who are outside, who are outside the faith. It's all-encompassing. It's a holistic, even if it's an addendum, and oh, by the way, at the end, it's a holistic approach. Complete instructions. This is how you ought to live. This is what Christ has done. This is how you are to respond to that. This is how you are to respond to other people. And he leaves that for them to evaluate themselves. And as we move into uh, a time of communion, as we approach the Lord's table, I think it's important that we take that mind right now and that we understand that this applies to us. We need to evaluate. Are we in character with what God has called us to be? Are we acting according to the character of Christ? Are we recognizing that Christ is preeminent in our lives, that he's central to everything, not just to us, but that he is it, he is the treasure. If there was nothing else but Jesus, that's good enough. Is he, is he that, does he have that place in our lives? Are we following correct, essential teachings of the Bible? Or are we getting wrapped around the axles with judging each other over X, Y, and Z? If, we, if, we're, do, if we're not doing these things, I think that's a red flag that, that we need to evaluate, that we need to examine ourselves. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians when he talks about um, the manner in which we receive communion. He says in, in chapter 11, verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks of this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 
For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. So what I'm going to invite you, we're going to do communion a little bit differently this morning. We're going to have Melanie come up. She's going to play. And I invite you to examine yourself. I invite all of us to examine ourselves. Are we living in a manner that is correctly reflecting the character of Jesus Christ? Are we making him central in our lives? Are we, are we following everything that he has taught? Or are we giving Jesus just one spot on the mantle over the fireplace along with you know, the, the NFL and, and uh, whatever else that, that might take up space in our, in our heart and in our, and in our worship? So, While Melanie plays, I invite you guys to pray and to consider that. And when you are ready, when you have examined yourself and you're you're good, and you say, okay, Lord, and you've had that time of reflection, you come to the table. We have one table here, we have one table over here, and you take the Lord's Supper. When you are ready, when when you can do so, uh, in your mind, cleanly, clean conscience, free. If it takes you a while to pray and work through it, that's awesome. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But it's important that we take these things to heart and that we understand what it is we're doing and and what it is going forward. So with that, I invite you guys. I'm going to pray real quick, and then I invite you guys to reflect and to partake as you feel ready. Um, We'll take a few minutes, and and then we'll close with worship. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word as, as direct as it can be sometimes that we need to understand this is how you would have us live. This is how you would have us act towards one another, act towards you, act towards unbelievers. And Lord, I confess so many times I don't get that right. And before I ask these people to examine themselves, Lord, I have to examine myself and say I'm I'm guilty. Forgive us, Lord, when you're not central, when we act in a way that's not reflective of your character and of your love for people. Draw us back to your preeminence, your goodness, your position as the upholder of all things, the one in whom all things consist, the reason we gather here, the reason that we are able to be free. Lead us back to the cross on that night where you were arrested, tried, and then in the morning hung on the tree for you, for me, for these guys, for everybody. Help us to walk worthy of that calling. We give this time to you, Lord. Search our hearts. We want to draw near to you right now.